Uh, this morning we'll be in Luke chapter 1. It will be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Mary's song, the passage that we typically refer to as the Magnificat, um, which has inspired all kinds of, of different music throughout the ages. But as we open there, I'm going to ask us to join together in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful for the season of Advent. And God, for everything that comes with it. For the traditions, the songs, the stories, the fun. And God, ultimately for the reminder that we are a people who are shaped by both your incarnation and by waiting for your return. As we open up our Bibles this morning, we ask that you give us ears to hear what you have for us. And God, I ask that you take my words and use them for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as soon as Mary finds out, we mentioned this last week a little bit, as soon as she finds out that she's pregnant, she runs to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And as they greet one another, we're told that the baby that's in Elizabeth's womb uh, leaps. And we, we get this this picture that's almost, uh, when I think of it, I like to think of it as a, a prelude to what is coming 30 weeks later when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Elizabeth's baby leaps, they celebrate, they cheer, and Mary sings out these words. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, on most nights in, in my house when I, I put my kids to bed, um, they asked to hear a story from my head. When I started telling these stories, they were simple. They were, they were stories about actual events from my childhood. So I talk about my dog, or I talk about something that happened in my elementary school. Or, or I'd make up a, a quick fictional tale that involved whoever their favorite character was during that time. But after a while, I just ran out of material. I just, I, I just, I, I couldn't, so, so, some of the stories from elementary school, I didn't want them to hear. And, and, and their, their, their characters were just kind of, oh, I, I ran out of material. So over the years, the stories have kind of increased in complexity. So on a given night, on a given night, Yoda might run into Batman while searching for Rainbow Dash in Andy's room. Do all of you know what all those characters are from? Yoda, Star Wars, Batman, Batman, Rainbow Dash. Anybody recognize Rainbow Dash? My Little Pony, Andy's room from, from, from Toy Story. So our bedtime stories, they now involve portals between different worlds of my kids' favorite stories. Sometimes they wake up in the morning and they think of all the holes in the plot that I told them the night before. And then I find myself, they challenge me to think through, how am I going to connect the dots days ahead of when I'm telling these stories? They, they love hearing the stories, and for the most part, I love sharing them. It's a, it's a joyful time for us. 
Now, one of the very first Christmas songs that many of us learn as children finds its origins in in a dad telling stories to his four-year-old daughter as well. It was the late 1930s, right at the end of the, the Great Depression. Bob, the storytelling father, had a, had a job in Chicago at a department store, Montgomery Wards. Any of you ever been to a Montgomery Wards? Yeah. My parents are from the Midwest, so I've heard lots of stories about Montgomery Wards. But he still couldn't afford to buy his daughter, Barbara, a present. He, he was making just enough to get by. It was 1938. Just, just enough to get by. And on top of it all, his wife was terminally ill. So medical bills were starting to pile up. It was a hard time for his family, but, but he was determined to do something, anything to cheer up Barbara around this season. So he started telling her stories at bedtime. Rudolph had it rough. He didn't fit in with the other reindeer. He didn't know their games. He looked funny. They all made fun of him. But as we know, he ends up leading Santa's sleigh. And, and Bob would tell his, his daughter these stories every night. And for Christmas, he couldn't buy her a present, so he decided to, to write down, write down and, and draw and illustrate this, this story in a homemade book for Barbara. Now his boss at Montgomery Wards got, got word about the story and asked him to read it aloud at the company Christmas story, uh, Christmas party. The chairman of the board at Montgomery Words heard about Bob's situation, listened to the story, and bought the rights to publish it, which helped the family get out of medical debt. Then, six years later, after Bob's wife had passed, after Montgomery Wards printed six million copies of the book, the CEO gave Bob the rights back to the book so he could sell it and reap the benefits of mass-producing this, this story that has now been told for a long time. A year later, Bob's brother-in-law wrote music, and now we sing, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a little... Son. If you add, we're going to sing the whole thing, aren't we? <laughs> so after reading the, the story about, about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I, I'm not sure if I'll ever sing it the same way. I'm not sure if I'll ever tell stories to my, my kids in the same way at bedtime. Joy was found for this family in a, a dark time. Joy created for a little girl by a terrified dad who, who couldn't afford much and who had an uncertain uh, feelings about, about the future. Joy created for a family by a company that didn't have to go the extra mile, but, but did. Now, when, when Mary runs to Elizabeth and Zachariah's house to share her news, when they celebrate together, and Mary sings out, we're given a, a picture of joy coming out of darkness, or joy coming in darkness. Their people had been oppressed for generations. Elizabeth was too old to have a baby, and Mary was, was too young. And yet, they share this contagious joy with one another. It's palatable. Advent reminds us that no matter how dark may seem, theme, things may seem, how difficult life may be today, the good news of Jesus' birth and his impending return is something that we are called to share. It is contagious. 
I know I've told stories about, about never wanting to become a Disney dad, and now that I have got kids, I'm hooked. I, I am, I am the Disney dad. I've told stories about that here on Sunday morning before, but I'll never forget the first time that we took Ella and Thomas to Disneyland. It was before Piper was born. Our, our mother, my mother-in-law, um, took us right around Christmas and Thomas was still pretty young, but, but Ella just kind of walked around with this, this permanent smile, permanent smile glued to her face. Her joy was infectious. And it was about dusk and we were standing around the, the rivers of, of America uh, right as, as all the Christmas decorations were starting to light up. And, and I noticed that there was a, a woman in a wheelchair that was being pushed around by her friends. She had to be in, the, in her 90s. And Ella's got this big smile and I look over at this woman and she too has this giant smile on her face. Ella has her first time visitor's badge on and is wearing it proudly. This woman in her 90s has her first time visitor's badge on and is wearing it proudly. As a native Southern Californian, I I grew up going to Disneyland. It was was nothing special. I took it for, for granted. By the time I became an adult, I grew tired of the crowds and Let's be honest, everything had changed since my childhood, and I was already a curmudgeon at 30 years old. It's changing. I don't want to see that. It took going through the park and seeing it through the eyes of my daughter to enjoy it again, to see the grin, her grin, and to see this this older lady's grin. Sometimes we we kind of do the same thing with Christmas. We listen to the story of Jesus' birth. We sing the same carols that we've sung for a long time. We've sung them for years. We, we hear the stories, but instead of being filled with joy, we, we, we just kind of default to the, ah, I've been there. I've, I've done that. Uh, my parents were in town this, this last weekend, and we went and visited uh, the Boozer's house. Because if you haven't driven by the Boozer's house uh, at Christmas night, you, you, you should around Christmas. There lights like no others. But we went inside their house, and... Um, I saw my, my, my parents' faces light up as they walked around the house and saw spode Christmas china everywhere. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. But then the boozers and my parents started talking about spode Christmas china and their faces, both of them, lit up. There, there's something about the, the joy of Christmas that we are called to share. And sometimes we fall into the trap of just thinking, oh, I've been there, done that. And what I want to encourage us this morning is to not fall into that trap just because we're familiar with the story. Mary's song reminds us of what we're celebrating. She's so ecstatic that she, she can't, she can't contain herself. The first words she sings are, are, are personal. They're personal. She's full of joy because God notices her. And from that point on, both, both in her life and in the lives of, of all the people she cared about, it, it would be different. Her words are reminiscent of poetry that we, we find in the Hebrew Scriptures where people are reminded of God's presence and God's plan. So we can hear Miriam singing after the Israelites cross the Red Sea. We can hear Hannah's voice after she dedicates Samuel at Eli's temple. We can hear the power of Deborah prophesying in Judges. Each song is connected to this contagious joy where the experience of the individual is connected to the liberty of a people. 
Mary's song isn't just a, a carol for one season. It was a, a declaration about how things were about to change. Now remember, right before she sings out in joy, she has a, a different sort of response. Right? That the angel Gabriel shows up and we're told, we read, that, that she's troubled, that she's disturbed, that she's confused. Why her? How terrifying would it be to be a 13 or 14 year old girl and have this being show up and say, hey, you're pregnant. Surprise. Why her? She's a young woman on edge in a society where many saw her as a second class citizen or even worse as, as property. She didn't know what her fiance would think, what her family would think, how her faith community might judge her. She didn't know any of those things. None of what was happening made sense. The type of joy that Mary experienced comes from being noticed by God right where she was in the midst of her confusion, her trouble, her her fear. Now, for some of us, what we really need to hear today, what we really need to hear during the Advent season is that God notices you. God notices you right where you sit, right where you, you sit in your feelings of insignificance in the places you hurt or the places you've been harmed and in, in, in your confusion, in your grief, with all your questions, wherever you sit, that God sees you in that place. Some of us just need to be reminded of that, that God sees you where you sit. The sort of joy that Mary feels where God notices her isn't defined by the absence of pain or the absence of, of confusion. It's defined by by the presence of the living God. Then she moves from celebrating what God has done in her own life to the bigger picture of what, what God was doing in society, what God was doing in the world, what God was doing in, in the community. She moves from something personal to something communal. Now, one of my favorite Christmas carols was written in response to church members like you sitting in pews and hearing music that they didn't like. Sitting in in pews and thinking, oh, I don't know those words. They were all sung in Latin in the 15th and 16th century. So they sat in pews and they thought, I, I don't recognize this, this music. I can't sing to it. I can't, I can't relate with it. So in England in the 15th and 16th century, a lot of the music was more, more somber. Lay people had no way of kind of influencing the music that was sung in church. So clergy would, would pick these songs that they knew, but the congregation didn't. So they'd sit in, in, in church, listen, enjoy it, and then they'd go home and they'd write their own music. So we got some homework today. I'm joking. Totally joking. So they'd go home and they'd write their own songs in English. They'd write the, the, with some upbeat music and then they'd sing them throughout the week. And really, this is the basis for what we now understand to be Christmas carols. It started during this time, and one of those songs was, God rest ye merry gentlemen. God rest ye merry gentlemen. We still sing it some 500 years or so after it was written, but I don't think we fully grasp the meaning of what's behind these words. So rest doesn't mean sleep. It doesn't mean relax. It means make or keep. And Mary... What, what, what do you think of when, when you hear Mary? Happy. So we say happy Christmas. 
Mary didn't mean that when this was written. When this was written, it meant mighty or great. God make you mighty. Then we also have to add some punctuation. Comma, gentlemen, gentle people. God make you mighty, gentle people. So it's a different picture than what what we think of when we sing, God rest ye, merry gentlemen, a very different one. It, it was more of a, a, a call to community. Hey, church, God make you mighty. It was, it was more that, that kind of communal call. Hey, let's, let's celebrate the risen Lord. Let's celebrate the birth of Jesus together. God make us mighty. It was kind of a rallying cry, if you will. Now, typically, when we, we talk about Mary's song, we focus on the first part, the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. And, and I think it's because the second part can be difficult to hear. She says things like, God scatters the proud. God brings down the powerful. God lifts up the lowly. God fills the hungry. God sends away the rich empty. The second half of the song is convicting. Especially for those of us who, who live in a time and a place like, like we do, where so much of our, our culture pushes abundance, pushes gaining influence. As she sings about the poor and the oppressed, the neglected and the forgotten, there's a warning for how we approach our faith. It's a call to action, a communal call to action. To respond to Jesus' birth with joy and to do something in our community with that joy. I think one of the reasons that, that Mary stays for as long as she does at Elizabeth and Zachariah's house is because she needed to unpack this with people. Yeah, she was celebrating. She was celebrating, but she, she needed to talk through what, what was going on. All of a sudden, people were going to see her as a woman who was, was pregnant with a revolutionary, with, with the person who was going to take down the powers that be. She had to unpack the joy, but she also had to prepare for the inevitable questions, both from those who were behind her, for those who would be excited about the birth of the Messiah, and those who would be threatened by it. She had to unpack what that all meant. Mary's joy, it it begins when she's, she's noticed by God. Despite her fear and uncertainty, God sees her. God takes initiative. And she says yes to what God has planned for her life. And it continues, maybe even growing in, in, in scope and in faith or in depth as she realizes what Jesus' birth meant for the entire world, including for us today. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was, I was telling a, a friend about that, that first trip to Disneyland with Ella and talking about the smile that was on, on her face. And, and he listens, kind of nodding his head. His, his daughter was in college at the time, and, and he pulls out his phone. He said, I got to show you something. And, and he pulls out this, this picture that his 21-year-old daughter had sent to him. She was studying abroad, and she's standing on a bridge overlooking, overlooking a, a, a big mountain, and she's got this kind of grin on her face that matches the grin of my four-year-old daughter at the time. And he says to me, he says, you know, The reason for the joy or the way it's expressed sometimes changes, but the joy is still there. So my hope for us this season, 
this Advent season is that we would, we would experience this joy of the Advent season in a way that we want to share it. That it is contagious among ourselves and among our community. Let's pray. Gracious and, and, and loving God, we, we pray that we would be a people of joy. A people who, who recognize that you meet us where we sit. And, and a people who recognize that the joy that, that you've given us calls us to action. We pray these things in your name. Amen.